Recently, if you don't know, we've been hosting uh, Cub Scouts on Thursday nights. And so what that has meant is a little bit of reshuffling. So we're starting our worship jam night. Uh, it's going to be on the first and the third uh, Thursdays of the month. So first and third Thursdays of the month. So it's coming up this Thursday. Uh, they'll be here at 6 up in this area here, and the Cub Scouts will be downstairs. And the reason for that is that at the end of the month, every month, the Cub Scouts do a big uh, pack meeting. They call it a pack meeting. And parents come, and this is where they give out badges, and people earn awards. And so this last uh, Thursday, I got to be there, and uh, it was awesome. We were here. There was probably 30 to 40 children and maybe 20 or so adults uh, here in this building. And it was just really amazing to see these kids um, enjoying our space and you know, getting rewards for things. And at the meeting, I was sort of uh, also publicly acknowledged as now I'm going to be the chaplain for uh, our troop, which is great. Uh, it's not a, yeah, amen. Yeah, praise God. It's not, uh, Cub Scouts are not a, an explicitly religious organization. Um, so being a chaplain means I get to sort of be a spiritual mentor, spiritual guide to people who are, some are Christian and some are not Christian. So it takes a little bit of maneuvering uh, to work, that, work through that, but I'm just happy that I get to be available for these kids and praying with them and hearing their needs and you know, seeing what good things God is doing in their life. So we're excited about that, uh, and yes, we have a lot of things going on at the church. All that to say, you know what I've noticed? When I first came to the church, and it was sort of the question was, what direction should we go now? And part of my response to that was, you know, I have in my heart, of course, things that God has placed in me and uh, gifts and skills that I have. But what I'm really interested in seeing is what is God doing here among these people in this community, in this congregation? What's God already at work at? Um, And let's hop on board that. Instead of trying to force God to follow our agenda, let's figure out where God is going and follow his agenda. It's like this novel concept, right? Um, and what I've been noticing over the past few months of just observing is there's some things that God has really been growing, and one of them is children. Our children's department has just exploded uh, in the past few months, which is awesome. And then we have the Cub Scouts, and that opportunity came out of the blue. And now there's another uh, opportunity that we have to partner maybe with uh, St. James Santiago School, which is a private uh, elementary school up the road, and they're interested in maybe using some of our facilities, and that came out of the blue. So there's kind of things like that that I'm sort of like, oh, you know, children seem to be what God is stirring up in us here, um, which is awesome. Uh, we love kids. So uh, all that being said, if you feel on your heart a little tug or you're saying, I don't know where to jump in or what ministry to do, consider children's ministry. We're getting to the point now where we need to have separate rooms for our kids downstairs. We have too many kids. It's a good problem to have. Too many kids to, be ha- to have in one uh, room. We need to start dividing out some nursery for the younger kids and some you know, older kids stuff. So if you uh, don't have a ministry you're currently in, please think about getting involved in that. We could use you uh, right now for children's ministry, for either in the nursery or teaching in the kids. Okay? So if you want to do that, you can come see me afterwards, or Sarah or Jerry are our children's church leaders as well. So, oh, Damien, how you doing, bud? Good. By the way, Damien has new rain boots. Can you show those off for us? Can you come up here for a second? No, he's like, I'm a little too shy. 
He's got new rain boots on, and they are awesome. Yeah. <laughs> He's joining us up to today. We need somebody to help teach our older kids. Because oh, you can't teach older kids at the same rate you teach younger kids. So sign up. You hearing me? Yeah. Let me know if I need to give you a phone call. Okay. All right. I'll see you all after service. Yeah, yeah, right, yeah. Whoa, watch yourself. Uh, right. Good. So let's pray. I have a sermon I want to give to you, and then we're going to do some communion at the end of it. Uh, Thursday night is 6 o'clock. Uh, let's pray. Let's come before the Lord. Lord, we thank you for your presence. We thank you for your good presence today. We ask that your word would be open to us, that we would have hearts to receive and ears to hear what you have for us this morning in your word. Come and teach us, Lord, by your word. Amen. Well, today we are starting a new sermon series. How many of you guys had fun with Edward last week? Was that good? Yeah, good. Yeah, it's awesome to have him around. I, I enjoy having him, and I'm so happy and grateful that he's here to help. Um, this week, we're going to start a new sermon series, and I'm going to take it all the way to the beginning of Lent. Do you know what Lent is? You raise your hand if you know what Lent is. One or two of us? Good, good, good. I'm so happy because it gives me an opportunity to talk and teach a little bit about Lent. Lent is a, is a season uh, of time in the church. It happens every year in the sort of the weeks that are leading up to Easter, leading up to Passion Week. And basically, it's a time where we symbolically live out a sort of uh, the desert time of Jesus. You remember Jesus, what, what happens uh, is he gets baptized and then he goes into the desert for 40 days. So for 40 days, we get an opportunity. That's okay, you can take poor Damien. Damien, my brother, I think you're going to the back, brother. Thank you, sir. Let's give a hand for Damien. Can we give Damien a hand? Thank you. Thank you, Cassandra. God bless him. Um, for 40 days, Jesus was in the desert being tempted. And at Lent, we sort of use this time, these weeks, to sort of build up into Easter. And it's sort of an expectation. And so often people fast from things during Lent. We are going to be fasting during Lent as a body in sort of expectation, not just of Easter, but of this new season of life that God has given us and discovering what that is. So expect to do that. Expect to be thinking about that in the back of your mind, and we'll be teaching more about what that means and looks like in the coming weeks. But until then, until then, we're going to focus now on a series of sermons out of the Gospel of John, and it's all on miracles. Different Gospels have different takes on Jesus. They, they, gotta, they incorporate different details about his life. And thank goodness they do because we get this rich, varied perspective on who Jesus was and what he did. And in Matthew and Mark and Luke, Jesus is always doing miracles. He's out there healing people. He's casting out demons and he's multiplying bread and he's doing all sorts of miracles. Um, and he's cursing fig trees and all this stuff. In John... Jesus doesn't do as many miracles. He doesn't record as many miracles. Now, of course, Jesus did miracles, but John, the gospel writer, decided not to include as many. In fact, he only includes about seven. And we're going to focus on about six of them. We're going to look at six of the miracles in John. And we're going to look at them and ask the question, uh, what God is doing through miracles in the book of John and in our own midst here. Okay? So first we're going to look at is John Chapter 2. Crack it open if you got it. I also have in the back in the foyer little scraps of paper 
that have a list of what I'm preaching on for every uh, sermon for this series. And if you want to, you can take that home and read the passage before you come to church so that you'll be familiar with it um, before you hear me talk about it. Well, that's a smart idea. So let's read this together. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read you. I'm going to give you the um, SRV. That's the Stephen Revised Version of the Bible. <laughs> yeah, uh-oh. This is what it says. Uh, this is a, some translation that I did on my own, so it's, yeah. Uh, it says, on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and Jesus' mother went there. And Jesus and his disciples also followed along. They went to the wedding, the wedding as well. And when the wine was lacking, when they had a lack of wine, Jesus' mother said to him, they don't have any wine. And Jesus said to her, what is that to you and me? It's sort of a weird phrase in Greek. It's sort of like, what do, why do you involve me? What is that between us? What is that to you? What is that to me? What, what, are, you, what are you trying to say here? Why, why are you bringing this up? Why are you bringing this up, lady? <laughs> Don't you know that my hour has not come? And his mother said to the, to the servants who were there, whatever he tells you to do, do it. And so standing there were these big jars made out of stone, and they were used by the Jews for rituals of purification and cleansing. And they held a lot of water. A lot of water. A total of probably 120, 180 gallons, we're talking about, between these jars. A lot of water. And Jesus said to these servants, he said, fill up those jars with water. And so they did it. They filled it up to the brim. And then he said to them, draw out now some of that water and go take it to the head steward. He's the one who's sort of in charge of distributing the food, making sure all the servants are doing what they do. Go take some to that guy. And when the head steward had tasted the water that had become wine, he didn't know where it was from. But the servants, they knew. They knew where it was from. And so the head steward, he calls the groom, and he says to him, in sort of a condescending turn, turn, you know, tone of voice, he says, now look, at, this is what usually happens at a wedding. Let me just remind you. Normally, what happens is people serve the good wine first because they want people to be able to enjoy the wine, right? Later, when people have enjoyed enough wine that they're not going to care about the quality of it, that's when they bring out the bad wine. Here you are bringing out the good wine last. What's wrong with you? <laughs> That's the Stephen Revised Version. <clears throat> this was the first sign that Jesus did in Galilee. And it revealed his glory. And his disciples, they believed in him. Now, I want to kind of walk us through this. There's, there's a lot here to talk about and some important points I want to make. And I was sort of anticipation of this. I put up on Facebook, why did Jesus turn water into wine? And people like responded to that. I was surprised. I actually had, if you, if you were on that post, uh, there was a guy named Sam Kellett who wrote a response on there. And he, I haven't talked to him in years. 
And he lives in the Czech Republic. He's not a Christian. And I was amazed to see the sort of response. Jesus turning water into wine. Maybe that's a little controversial. Maybe that's a little, it piques people's interest, I guess. Jesus is at this wedding. I want to start here in verse 1. It doesn't start with Jesus. Actually, it starts with Mary. Mary gets invited to a wedding. And why does it say Mary first? Why does it say that Mary went to a wedding? Well, I think it's because, and I would submit to you, I think Mary either knows these people intimately, or she's related to them. And the reason I say that, we're going to find out later, but Mary seems to be helping to organize some of the wedding. Okay? So Mary gets invited to this wedding, and Jesus and his disciples kind of tag along. They go as well. And some people want to talk about what does that mean in terms of Jesus' endorsement of marriage? What does that mean in terms of Jesus' endorsement or non-endorsement of drinking? I'm not interested in talking about any of that. So if you want to talk about that, come Wednesday, and we'll talk about it, all right? I'm not interested in talking about that today. But it says that Jesus' disciples, they were also invited to the wedding, and Mary is there, she's helping out, and then it says when the, when the wine started to lack, when it gave out, when they ran out of wine, Jesus' mother came to him and said, they have no wine. Now, what is that, what's the point of that? What's the gravity of that? In ancient cultures, in ancient uh, Israel, Weddings were not just, uh, you know, these kind of formal affairs. They were parties. They were parties that were meant to last for quite a few days. So what happened is, if you loved somebody, you want to get married to them, you would uh, basically propose there would be an engagement. And at that point, in terms of legality, in ancient Judaism, you're, you're pretty much a couple. You're pretty much there. I mean, if you notice, Mary and Joseph are traveling together. Uh, when Joseph finds out that Mary's pregnant, he wants to divorce her. They haven't actually gotten married yet, but they're betrothed to one another, and betrothal became, uh, at this ancient time, was a very weighty and legal um, arrangement. And then later, you had your wedding, and your wedding was meant to kind of be a celebration of your betrothal, and the celebration lasted for quite a few days. And so you would plan to have a number of people at your place for a number of days. And you would have to acquire a lot of food and a lot of wine and a lot of water for people to drink while they're there. And in fact, there are circumstances of weddings which have ended prematurely. This is in the ancient world. Weddings that ended prematurely when the wine or the food ran out. And the, there were legal ramifications for the couple involved. They were, they, you can sue somebody for running out of wine at the wedding. And it kind of, sounds kind of funny, but it, it makes sense if you think of it like this. These people are coming from all around to come to your house for this wedding. They're not bringing food with them. They're not bringing provisions with them. So if you run out of wine, there's nothing to drink. If you run out of food, there's nothing to eat. And you actually could be endangering these people. You have them at your house. They could be three days a walk from their house. How are they going to eat? How are they going to drink? You know, so there's a legal ramification here. So it's a big deal when Mary says to Jesus, they ran out of wine. That's a big deal. I want you to imagine in your head, I want you to to go with me in, in your mind. What would it be like to be this couple? What would it be like to be this bride and this groom? The fact that they ran out of wine might alert us to something. Maybe they didn't have enough money to purchase enough wine. Maybe more people showed up than they thought. 
You wouldn't run out of wine. That's an accident. So is it possible that in the days and the weeks and the months leading up to this wedding, they're sitting down and they're, they're thinking about, okay, how much wine are we going to need? How much food are we going to need? And they begin to say to themselves, okay, look, let's be honest here. We do not have enough for people to stay as long as they want to. So as long as only this group of people comes, as long as your aunt comes, but your, your other aunt, she, doesn't, she stays home, you know, as long as your cousin doesn't bring too many friends with him, then we should be okay. Um, but if more people come, that, that is going to be a problem. And you can imagine during the night as the wedding is progressing and people start arriving. And here comes Jesus, and he's bringing six guys with him. And here comes, you know, somebody else, some other cousin, and he's bringing people with him. And, and all of a sudden, the groom is beginning to do the math in his head a little bit, you know. Okay, okay, okay. Uh, we should still be okay, I think, but it's kind of treading into waters that are kind of deep, and all of a sudden he realizes, we're not going to have enough wine. Uh, This could potentially be a huge thing. And I imagine him in that situation, and he's at his own wedding. He's got to put on a happy face. He's got to be a host. You know, he's got to engage with people, and people are expecting certain social functions. He's going to be the guy, so he's Outwardly, he's smiling. He's engaging with people. And inwardly, he's beginning to feel the ground kind of slip out underneath him. And I imagine every once in a while, he's probably been avoiding her gaze, but every once in a while, he'll look over at his bride, and she'll look at him, and they'll have a moment of honest look between them of, this is not going to end well for us. The ramifications for this, by the way, are not just legal, they're social. This is the kind of thing you could be ashamed for for decades afterwards. They're beginning to realize this is, this is going to end badly for us, but they can't say anything. What are they going to say? What are they going to tell people? They can tell people to leave. What are they going to say? They can't say anything. They just got to keep on going and just pray and just hope that something happens, please. And finally, uh, finally the groom has had enough. He can't, he's gotten very quiet now, right? He's He's realizing the end is near. He's realizing there's just a few more drops of wine left. And so finally, he, in his desperation, he, he pulls Mary aside. Maybe Mary's an aunt. Maybe Mary's a cousin. Maybe Mary's a, a neighbor or a friend. And he says, Mary, we, we don't have any wine for these people. I don't know what to do. And Mary says, I, let, me just, let me take care of it. I'll take care of it. And the reason I know he talked to Mary is because the head steward didn't know. He didn't know where the wine had come from. The head steward, as far as the head steward knew, the guy who was coordinating this whole event, as far as he knew, they had wine for days. The groom and the bride, they didn't talk to the head steward. They went to Mary. Right? When you're in a desperate situation, when your inward world is crumbling, but your outward world has to keep up a facade, you go to a friend Maybe somebody very trusted. Not the people who are in charge. Maybe you don't even go to the pastor. You go to a friend. You say, look, I, I have to admit something. We, I'm in a bad place. I'm headed down a cliff. This is, this is not uh, going to end well for me. I need some help. Maybe that's you. Maybe you're the person that somebody goes to. What does Mary do with that information? She goes to Jesus. She goes to Jesus. She doesn't have any way to make wine. And furthermore, I'd like to submit to you that Jesus 
This is his first miracle. Mary's never seen Jesus make wine either. Right? She has no reason to believe that Jesus is going to be able to do anything about this. But maybe, maybe she knows from experience that when she has gone to her son in the past, somehow or another he's been able to pull through. Somehow or another he's a reliable person. So she goes to him, just like you and I, we go to Jesus, and we don't force Jesus to do anything. We don't tell Jesus what to do. All we do is alert him to a need we have. Jesus, they're out of wine. Jesus, you're gonna, you might have to do something here because they are running out of wine. Jesus, I don't know what you are planning to do here, but I have somebody with me, and they are sick, and they're dying, and, and I'm just letting you know I need you to do something here. I don't know what you want to do, but I'm going to leave it in your hands, Jesus. Jesus, I, my money is running low. We're going to come to the end of this month, and I don't know exactly what's going to happen. I'm letting you know, Jesus, I have a need here. I'm alerting you to my need. And Jesus says to her, he says to her, lady, what, what is that between us? And, um, you know, it's, it's funny because I was talking about this passage with a friend, and he said, oh, what are you going to do with this verse? You know, where he says, woman, what, what do you want with me, or whatever. You know, can I just point something out? This is just an aside. This is my own, my, this is just Stephen talking for a second. Can I just pull back and say, when has the word woman been a term of disrespect? Okay. Yeah, women are wonderful, good, respected people. You don't turn to somebody and say, man, and have that mean a term of disrespect. But somehow in our culture, when you call somebody, hey, woman, that is viewed as a term of disrespect. Can I just say, woman is not a term of disrespect. There's nothing disrespectful about women. Women are good. Women are created in God's image. That's just an aside. Yeah. So I don't, I'm not going to try and justify Jesus here using this word, because that's our problem that we bring to the text. Okay. When Jesus says to his mother, woman, what is that between us? And we interpret that as, oh, is he being disrespectful? That's our problem. That's because we are using this really messed up worldview and pushing it on Jesus. From Jesus' perspective, it is absolutely not disrespectful to call somebody a woman. That's just an acknowledgement of who they are. So if it helps you, you could use the word lady. That's a bit more respectful, I guess. It's the same sense. But I want to challenge you. I would just challenge you in your daily life. Um, don't use the term woman as a term of disrespect. It's not disrespectful at all. Okay? That was an aside. Go back to the text. Yeah. So he says to her, he says to her, woman, what is that between us? And it's interesting, you know, instead of focusing on what he does say, I want to focus on what he doesn't say. He doesn't say mother. He doesn't say, hey, mom, why are you bringing that up to me? He's trying to maybe send a message our relationship, Mary, for a long time we've been mother and son. And that's wonderful. That's good. But now things have changed. I have a path that I'm walking on now. And as much as I am still your son, our relationship needs to be one of Messiah and uh, you know, ardent believer, not one of mother-son. You don't, you don't get to be my mom in this situation. You don't get to tell me what to do. That relationship has changed. Woman. By the way, that's the same word that he addresses her from the cross. 
when he turns to his disciple John and he says, woman, behold your son, knowing that he's about to die and she has real practical, honest needs that he should be fulfilling for her as her son and now he's going to die. And so he says to her, woman, this is your son now. Behold, John, let him take care of you. Right? So again, it's the same term. It's a term of uh, endearment, a term of respect. Okay. Mary draws her attention to the problem at hand, and then she opens up an avenue for him to work. She turns to the servants there, and she says, do whatever he says. Just do whatever he says. How many times do we come before God with a request? Oh, Jesus, I need your help in this. I need you. And then we tell God how he's going to do it. And what I need you to do is this. You need to do this, this, and this, and then we'll be fine. Right? There's a special kind of grace that comes from presenting a request before God and then leaving it there before God and saying, Lord, whatever it is that you need to do, you tell me whatever I need to do, and I'll do that. I'm not going to tell you how to run the world. I'm going to humbly allow you to move and do what you're going to do. I was reading um, uh, this week a letter from Glenn Burris. He's the president of Foursquare, and he wrote a letter about when he was a pastor, and it spoke to me because I'm now a pastor. And he said, when I started out as being a pastor, uh, he said, it was so hard because people would come to me with needs, and I just had absolutely no way of serving those needs. And it was amazing, he said, the day that I realized I need to just get Jesus to fulfill those needs. <laughs> I wonder where you are in your life. Is there a family member in your life? Is there a sickness in your family? Is there a, a hard emotional work that you're going through and you feel like you are running out of resources? Guess what, guys? You're never supposed to rely on your own resources to bring healing, to bring restoration. That is when we go to Jesus and we say, oh, Jesus, you are the one who I need. You are the one with all of the resources, so would you please help? When we begin to direct people towards Jesus instead of towards ourselves, that's when we begin to see true transformation in people's lives. And not, it's not just about, by the way, alleviating our burdens. But when we begin to direct people towards ourselves, we're sending them a message that I can meet your need. That I can, I can, oh yes, I will find some wine for you. I will find some healing. I will work on that restored relationship. And it's a false, it's a false idea that we have the ability to affect that kind of a change in our world. But the truth is that that ability is only occupied by God. So we direct people towards Jesus and then we open up avenues and say, Jesus, whatever it is that you want to do, go ahead and do it. And so what does he do? He looks and he sees these stone jars holding 120 to 180 gallons. It's quite a lot of water. And uh, as I was researching this and kind of looking at it, there's a lot of different ways you can talk about what these stone jars sort of symbolize. But I want to read to you a passage from a commentary here. That's okay, Lee. About what it, what it means to have an artifact for religious purification. Now it's being used by God. This is what he said. This is what his commentary said. He said, We have created a world of religious vessels, no less traditional than the ones described in Cana. We have created rituals and customs. We're going to be doing a ritual later today, by the way, called Lord's Supper. 
that have everything to do with religious habits and may have little to do with God. In some fashion, I have to be willing to permit Jesus to step into my world and affect a dramatic critique of these things that I cherish and defend. The Cana story says God has arrived and Christ desires an immediacy, an intimacy with us that will not be impeded by ritual forms that no longer bring life. If we only do communion, because that is something that every month we show up and do, I am not interested in doing it. There is a sense of obligation I feel to doing the Lord's Supper as a minister. But if all of this is is an empty symbol, then why are we doing it? There can't, has to be, if this is just a jar that we use for purifying our hands, then what's the purpose of it, really? It's useless. And when Jesus steps into this situation, that's what he picks. He zeroes in on these jars that are used for purifying yourself before you eat. These jars that are used for a religious purpose, just to, to build up your own sense of religiosity. And Jesus zeroes in on these things and he says, you know what, you've been using these things for all sorts of religious purposes, i got a purpose for these things. Fill them up with water. Fill them up with water. I'm going to do something here. I'm going to affect a change here. I'm going to meet a need here. And let me tell you something. If the Lord's Supper meets a need in your life, okay. If the Spirit of God is filling these things up and changing something inside of you when you take them, okay. All right. If when you eat this and you drink this, something happens in your mind where you actually begin to remember Jesus' sacrifice and think about his death and resurrection. Okay, now I see. This is not just bread and liquid. This can be actually something that God moves through, that God does, affects a change through it. So he fills up these stone jars with water. And they go and take the water, which has been turned into wine, to the head steward, and he drinks it, and he scolds the groom, you know. Why, what are you doing, man? This is, this is delicious. Why are you even keeping this stuff? We, this should have been here at the beginning. When God takes a hold of something and transforms it, it surpasses all expectations. When the Spirit of God is at work, we can get up here and play music. I like playing music. I'm a musician. I enjoy playing music. If we get up here and play music on a Sunday morning, that's fine. That's great. We just had a wonderful musical experience. But when the Spirit of God shows up and begins to do a work through music in our midst, in our lives, it far exceeds all expectations for what it would be like to just have a band playing. That's what I'm interested in. That's what I'm interested in. Not interested in just doing things. I want the Spirit of God to come in and, and begin to affect change. So I want to ask you, is there, is there an area of your life that you do out of spiritual habit? Is there an area of your life which is lacking in life? The structure is there, but the life is gone. The jar is there, but it's empty. Is there something in your life is there, a, is there a devoted prayer time? Is there a, is there a way that you've been talking? Is there a, a thought you've been having which at one point perhaps was full of purpose for you? But now it's simply the shell of an enlivened experience. 
The Holy Spirit wants to come once again and fill up those areas of your life and birth a new passion in your heart so that the things that we have created can be actually full of the Spirit of God and back to their proper use. I, um, I want to skip to verse 11. We're going to end on this. Jesus did this, it says. Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee and revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Throughout this series, we're going to be looking at different miracles that Jesus does. And John has a special word for miracles that Jesus does, and they're called signs. Um, John calls them signs. Uh, other gospels call his miracles different things. They call them, um, for example, like the literal word miracle, which is kind of like a word that means power, a power thing, a thing of power happened. It's actually related to the word dynamis, from which we created the word dynamite. Some of a powerful moment. But John doesn't look at it like that. He calls them signs. Signs. Why does he call them signs? What does a sign do? Hey, you know what signs do. Yes. A sign directs you to something. It, it, it points you in a direction. And for John, when we look through his miracles, what we're going to find is that the point is not the miracle itself. The point is not turning water into wine. The point is, where is it directing you? Because some people can experience a miracle and they're directed elsewhere. They're directed straight out the door. Some people, when they experience a miracle, they say, my goodness, wow, that was, what a feat of modern medicine. You know, what a, wow, that's, you know, or they'll give it, they'll give that praise and glory to another deity or they'll attribute it to the power of, um, uh, what do they say, positive thinking or something like that. But when Jesus comes in and begins to do something and, and the sign works, it'll point you towards Jesus. And so it says that the sign revealed his glory. I want to read you a passage I, I have uh, in the back in my office. So I want to come on to end with this. But in my office, I have, uh, you know, commentaries, of course. It's sort of what you get. You kind of collect them like lice, you know, when you're a pastor. And... <laughs> I mean, they're better than lice, they're, but they, I just mean that you just, you go back there and all of a sudden you got five more commentaries. It's like, where do these things come from? They've multiplied. Um, and a lot of them are good. And I, I consult quite a few whenever I'm preparing a sermon, but there's one particular group of uh, writings that I like to go to a lot. I only have it in John. My grandpa Papa was a minister, a Baptist minister for a long time. And he took all of the sermons that he preached and he put them into um, you know, volumes uh, on different books. And for some reason, I only got the book of John. My uncle, who's also a pastor, got all the rest. I got the book of John, so I cherish that. It's in two volumes of his sermons on John. And I want to read you something that he wrote, if that's okay with you. Um, so this, he wrote this, he preached it in like 1948 uh, up in Washington. And he's talking about when it says here that he revealed his glory. Up till this time, that divine glory had been exercised in common acts of youthful life, obedience to his mother, love to his brethren. It was just as divine in those daily and simple acts as when manifested in a startling and wonderful way. It was just as much an act of God on earth when he did an act of ordinary human love 
and duty as when he did the extraordinary act, such as turning water into wine. God was as much in his daily life as he was in his miracles. The miracle only made the hidden glory more visible. It more emphatically fastened our attention upon that glory. And then he used an illustration. He said, it's sort of like lightning. You know, when you are out in a rainstorm, we get them every once in a while here, and there's lightning that flashes. And it's this moment of like, oh my goodness. You see the lightning spread across the sky and how amazing that is. But what you don't realize is that in every drop of water, there's a potential for lightning. Just because you don't see it manifesting in full glory doesn't mean that it's not there. The same electrons, the same uh, charged particles that are in every single drop of water that produce lightning, they're there in your glass that you drink. But you don't think about that because you don't see it shooting across the sky. God's glory is at work in the growth of the vine, the ripening of the grape, and the process by which grape juice passes into wine. It is not more glory, but more glory, but glory more manifested when water at his bidding passes at once into wine. The miracle is merely to remind us that God works even when we see no miracle. And I would submit to us a challenge, a challenging statement perhaps that's hard sometimes for Pentecostals, but the glory of God is at much present at the bedside of someone who is dying and then resurrected back to new life and lives another two decades as it is at the bedside of someone who does not get back up, but who passes from this life with a sense of peace and a sense of purpose. I want to say that again. The glory of God is as much present at the bedside of someone who being sick is raised to new health and lives for another 20 or 30 years as it is at the bedside of someone who passes from this life with peace and purpose. One does not negate the other. Perhaps one is more revealing his glory, pulling back the curtain, showing us that shooting lightning bolt from heaven. But both are full of the richness and glory of God. There is something beautiful and good about going home to your Jesus. I pray one day that when I get there, I'll be able to pass from this life knowing that I am fully in the arms of Christ. And one day, brothers and sisters, unless Jesus comes back, all of us will find that moment. But the glory of God wouldn't have abandoned us there. The presence of God does not leave us there. He's just as present. So when Jesus pours this water, has this water poured into these jars, and then it passes into wine instantaneously. It's a sign to us. It's a sign to us. And the question is, what are you more interested in? The sign or the person who delivered the sign? Because we can spend all of our lives searching after those signs, looking for that light without ever acknowledging the one who gives the sign, the one to whom the sign points. So why did Jesus turn water into wine? He did it in order to point you to him. 
in order to point you into a direction. Now, we've talked about this in a lot of spiritual terms, a lot of deep theological terms. I want to zoom back and end on a practical note. Because practically what happened here was Jesus came to a party where something was about to go down. Some people's lives were about to be destroyed by a lack of wine. And Jesus saw that need and he met that need. In a very practical and real sense, when you encounter needs in your life, though they might seem small, Jesus wants to see and meet that need. He may not even do it the same way twice. But there is no need so small. There's no thing. Jesus didn't say to Mary, oh, come on now. Water, I mean, wine, what is that? We're we're talking about eternal salvation here. What about wine? I don't care about wine. No. He saw a need, a real human need, and he met it. So we have communion. We have this. And what is this? This is also a sign. Did you know that? This is a sign. This is meant to point you in a direction. It's meant to point you to something. And brothers and sisters, if it doesn't point you to anything, I encourage you to stay where you are because you'd just be wasting your time. But if this points you to something, I want to tell you what it points you to. There was a later time in Jesus' life when he sat down at another table, at another banquet with his closest friends. And he said to them, I, I, I want to share something with you. He said, do you see this? He said, do you see this bread here? Is this loaf of bread? He said, this, this bread is my body. And it's been broken. It's been broken for you like that. Like it just has been torn for you. When you eat it, Remember me. Remember what I've done for you. Remember my body that's been broken. Broken by the weight of sin. Broken by this world. After he did that, he he took a glass of wine. It's a common drink. In this time and place. And he said, this, this wine, this is my blood that's been spilled out for you. It's been poured out as an offering for you. When you drink this wine, anytime you drink it, remember me. Remember what I'm doing here. And I can imagine the disciples feeling that moment, watching him do this, thinking to themselves, what does that mean? What does he mean? And then in a few days, about 24 hours later, as Jesus is being broken, as his literal body is being broken, as he's being nailed to the cross, and they see his... Thank you, guys. Thank you, Kim. We're going to invite the kids up to take communion with us. You can go... Can you sit up right here on the front? When they see his blood being poured out, they begin to realize this was more than just talk. This was more than just an empty symbol. You guys can go, yeah, sit up in the front here. This is more than just an empty symbol. This is a real thing. This is full of meaning. And so I want to encourage you today. Some churches have different stipulations on who's invited uh, to take communion. This is ours. We have a stipulation. 
Would you like to hear it? If you have, oh, thank you, I will tell you. If you have a need in your life today, if you need something, you need a touch from Jesus, you need some forgiveness, you need some healing, you need salvation, you need restoration, you have an emotional hurt in your life that needs healing, if you have a need in your life today, I encourage you to take this with us. If you have a physical need, if you're hungry, honestly, communion was first in its very original context meant to be a meal that we share together for people who are physically hungry. If you are physically hungry today, you're welcome here. Jesus has opened this table up for us. We want to encourage you to join with us. So I'm going to pray over this. And then what we're going to do is you are going to come up on your own and you're going to take a piece of bread. We have some gluten-free crackers here as well. You can take some bread. You can take a cracker. You can take a small uh, thing of juice. Go back to your seat. And I want you to take, I'm not going to lead you in it. You're going to take it on your own, but this is what I want you to do. I want you to take it with somebody else. Okay. So it doesn't have to be, uh, you know, a whole group of people could just be you and one other person, but we share communion together. Okay, so I we're gonna I'm gonna invite you up after I pray. Take it back to your seat. Share it with one other person. All right. Does everybody understand? Good. Let's pray together. Thank you, Jordan. Let's all pray together. Can you guys help me pray? Can you go like Daisy? Can you help me? Do you want to come up? Do you guys want to come up and pray with me? You can if you want. Come on up. Come on up. Come on, James. Okay, this. What we're going to do. Remember how we did this last time? Put your hands on the table. On the table. Right over here. Jordan, you can put your hands right there. Okay, and we're all going to pray together. When I get to the end of it, then you say amen, okay? You say it as loud as you can, okay? Oh, yeah, okay. You can say in Jesus' name, amen. Yeah, that's fine. Okay. Lord, we thank you for your body. We thank you for your blood. We thank you that you've forgiven us all of our sins. We remember you today, Jesus, and the sacrifice that you made. We know that that wasn't just for then, but it was for today, and it's for tomorrow, and for every day, for all of eternity. Thank you, Lord. You are good to us. Okay, ready? In Jesus' name, amen. Good job, kids. Okay, go ahead. you guys can go ahead. Actually, you can take this with you if you want. I'm going to go ahead and invite you up. Go ahead and come up. I'm going to go back to the piano and play a little bit. Uh, if there's somebody around you that uh, may have more difficulty getting up here, would you take some to, you, to them? That would be wonderful. Thank you.
brought me out of darkness when I failed you with grace. Giver of mercy, you are my help entirely. Lord, I can't help but sing. Says, are yes and amen. 